want to welcome all of our listeners to a special live episode of Minority Report podcast with Eric and Carell, coming to you from Ad Color Conference and Awards. Each episode, we talk with leaders in business, tech, and media, and we are thrilled. We've got Desiree, who just came off the stage and is hanging with us. Desiree, can you introduce yourself to the audience and and tell us a little bit about you? Yeah, absolutely. Hi, everyone. I am Desi, Desi from the block, Auntie Desiree, (laughs) my favorite little one. And I am from Jamaica originally, lived in New York, and now I live in Baltimore, Maryland. Excellent, excellent. And I'm up from DC. So, okay. Hey, hey neighbor. Okay. <laughs> hey yeah, we'll catch up back home. Oh, yeah, <laughs> for sure. For sure. We're thrilled you're hanging out with us. Thanks and, for having and, me. Uh, the audience really was into everything you were talking about. I want to talk to you a little bit about that. So, we're going to circle back to that in a second. But tell us a little bit about where you were born and raised. Tell us about your family. Yeah, so I was born in Jamaica and migrated to United States when I was 13, lived in New York up until college and had some setbacks. I went actually went to college, finished college as an adult student, graduated from Georgetown and then went to the University of Maryland in Baltimore. And now I am doing my doctorate at the University of Southern California. And so most of my family, my my mom is in Florida, dad is in Philly, and my sister is down in the D.C. area with me. Oh, okay. And your family is here, right? Yes. So uh, tell us a little bit about what that was like growing up here with your family and tell us a a little bit about that. Yeah, so definitely coming here as a teenager, it was a little challenging, right? Adjusting and assimilating, but you know, the Caribbean culture is very, very big here. So that wasn't that hard. Mm. And so we lived in New York, in Queens with my my mom's, one of her best friends, I call Auntie Melrose Mm. and her family. And so we had a lot of family around us all the time. So even though we were little kids just from Jamaica, we still felt like at home. Mm. Yeah. New York has that, that ability to just make you feel like, you know, you're at home. That's great. But the cold. Getting used to the cold. Yeah. Yeah. I just thought about that. That was the biggest, the biggest. Is there ever a such thing as getting used to it? It's just more of just dealing with it, right? Listen, I moved to Baltimore thinking, all right, if I move a little bit further south, it would like help a little bit. No, it's still cold down there. Still cold. You start realizing that closet space gets smaller and smaller. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. For sure. Desi, I want to ask you a little bit about what you were talking about earlier on stage, yeah. you know. Can you talk a little bit about identity-based trauma? Tell us what that means and tell our audience a, a little bit about that. Yeah, so identity-based trauma is what I sort of discovered kind of organically, accidentally, depending on how we want to look at it. And it essentially is the trauma that we face as people of color right, as a result of being discriminated and marginalized, you know, the assaults that we have to endure on our minds and our bodies and our spirits. And it happens to us all the time, constantly, right? Young kids in school, growing up in the community, Mm. all the messages that we receive that tells us that we're not quite valued in that same way, right? And so my goal today was really just to help shed some more light on it because Mm. I discovered it accidentally, and I know from sharing it with a lot of other therapists as I've been teaching it to them, most, if not all of them, have never heard of it, right? Not in the work that they're doing with their clients. So I figured if 
clinicians aren't hearing about it. Maybe most of the public don't know about it, right? right? And so a lot of clients show up in my office trying to work through relationship issues or career issues. And they'll say things like, oh, I think I have imposter syndrome and I just need to just get some some good tools to help me get over that. After hearing that repeatedly over and over again from different people, different walks of life, no matter how accomplished they were, what their financial status was, the message was still the same. They always feel like they're not enough. They walk into the boardrooms feeling not up to snuff and just always with these feelings of stress and anxiety in these environments and just trying to figure out how they should resolve it. And what I've realized after many, many years of research is that the issue isn't ours, right? It comes from the message that's been implanted in us, right? I call it like a, an operating system, right? From this, this thing called the background narrative the negative messages with labels and stereotypes about who we are, who we can't be, all of that. And so the goal is to help folks first just see the identity-based trauma and to shift the narrative from it is our issue to resolve. Instead, focusing on the fact that the society that we live in is just embedded with these messages. And so our goal is to figure out how to to best navigate it so we can live a life of joy, but not to internalize the messages that we are less than. This is our problem to fix. Right. And so that was the goal. So hopefully, hopefully I accomplished it. (laughs) Yeah. And I like the way you phrase that in terms of like, if you're dealing with, you know, some trauma, some mental health, right. You can't go at it alone. You can't keep it bottled up and I'd love to get your thoughts on this because I think in our communities, right, specifically the black communities, right, talking about mental health issues and admitting and raising your hand that you have an issue is a challenge for a lot of people in the black community. Yeah, absolutely. And I've seen over the years that I've had my private practice over 10 years now, the shift that when I first started, I mean, I started the practice because when I was growing up dealing with my own issues of trying to understand what it meant to be a gay woman, you know, there wasn't anyone that looked like me that I could talk to. And so my goal was to do that. And I thought, all right, so if I just show up, right, as a Black woman, then the Black folks will come. And then I realized exactly what you were saying. There's this there's a stigma around it. And it's not as easy for us to go show up in someone's office and bear our soul because There's so much stigma, this idea that if you do, you're weak, right? Like this idea that we need to to toughen up and handle our, our stuff ourselves. And also the idea that when things happen in our families, it's not righteous to share the secrets, right? We need to just figure it out internally and work through it. And that is where a lot of the problem lies, like this feeling like you can't talk about it. But in the past 10 years, I have seen the shift. And that gives me so much, so much joy that I'd say in the last, especially the pandemic, right? The last two to three years, but especially last year, man, my practice blew up so much. I ended up turning into a group practice. Mm -hmm. It was me alone for many, many years. And now I've hired other clinicians because I was so overwhelmed and I was afraid of getting burnout. So I said, all right, I gotta get some more folks on board to help me Mm -hmm. because the demand was so high. 
And although it was a lot and it felt overwhelming, it felt good because mm. I said, yes, mm. we come into therapy. Yes. Mm. You know, we're not sitting there trying to figure it out on our own anymore. Just talk. Right. Mm. Right. Just talking to our family and friends and hoping that that will help. Right. We need someone professional who can help us unpack all the years of IBT and other traumas that we have and help us, like you said, develop these tools to keep going because we can't change this work. I mean, we can't change this, this society, but we can do the work. We can do the work to heal ourselves so we can navigate, push through it in a way that we're not just surviving, but we're like thriving, right? That's what we need to be doing. And so hopefully with the shift that I've seen, hopefully a lot of this is, you know, is changing. A lot of celebrities and folks, they're, they're giving more voice to it. So I'm seeing the shift and I'm, I'm happy with where it's going. Where does the passion come from? Because we're talking here, obviously you've made a life career out of this, right? And you're very passionate about it, which is awesome. And you're doing great work. Where did the passion come from? You know, that's a good question. I don't think anyone ever ever asked me that question before. <laughs> I just think of it as like, this is just what I do. I think it comes from my own personal experience, right? Growing up as a Jamaican child in a conservative Catholic home, there's a lot of memories that I can recall of depression and anxiety and just things that I needed to have someone help me work through. And there wasn't anyone there. And so a big part of it for me is always to show up in a way to be the person for others that I didn't have when I needed that person when I was younger, yeah. right? And so when I first started out, I worked with a lot of kids and did a lot of work with them, especially in Baltimore, you know, helping them to name some of the things that have been normalized to us. A lot of the, the community violence that we experience, a lot of things, right, that we see happen so often around us, we start to think it's normal. Right. I helped and hopefully continue to help them unpack it and name it and make decisions to have a different future. One that hopefully looks a little bit better, a little bit more promising than the one that they grew up in. So that's where a lot of that comes from. I was recently named to the task force. The mayor and the legislator in Baltimore, legislative body in Baltimore, created the first trauma-informed care task force. And we have a very ambitious goal of making Baltimore the first trauma-informed city in the country, in the world probably, right? By essentially training all of our government and agencies in the city to shift their policies and the way that they do things. A lot of it now in terms of how they deal with families in Baltimore is very much focused on punitive. Like you do this, this is the punishment that you do this. This is what's going to happen, right? To shift that to looking at the stories and the histories of these people, because there's some rich history in Baltimore and a lot of people don't know red line. if you ever heard about it, where essentially they created a line, right? My community that I live in, in Bolton Hill in Baltimore was one of those communities where many, many years ago, right after slavery, they said that the churches and many in the community created with the help of realtors, in this community and in many others, make sure no people of color move into them, right? And they put stipulations on the deeds, right? So these are the kind of 
places, the kind of communities that people in Baltimore and, and in many cities around the world, right? It started in Baltimore, but it didn't end there, right? Many communities in the United States have had to live through. And so a big part of the work that we're doing is hopefully to shed some light on that, to understand the reason why people are, you know, probably not as hopeful and able to get up every day and be, you know, joyous because they still have to live in some of these communities where these systems are still, these systems of oppression are still very much in place, Mm -hmm. right? And if we don't shift that as community leaders, as healers, as social workers, whatever our role is, then a hundred years from now, same thing, right? And so that's where the passion comes from, that maybe not in my lifetime we can see the change, but hopefully, you know, my nephew and others his age can live in a very different world than the one that we're having to live through currently. Absolutely. And I think the structure that you just talked about has been built over, you know, hundreds of years, right? So it's not going to be broken down overnight. It's going to take time. Desi, I'm curious, and again, can't do it all on your own. And it seems like there's a, a lot of folks that are committed to this process. What are other ways that people can help and be part of that? How else can you activate others? So there are ways to cut into that time. What are some ideas around that? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of folks who I'm very excited about. I guess if we're talking generation wise, I'm considered Gen X, right? And so there's a lot of ways that I see a lot of the younger folks Mm -hmm. who come to me for therapy, like they're excited and they're out there doing the work. They're not settling in the way that we did, right? So that excites me about their mindset. They're not going to just take whatever you give them, right? And so being an activist, that's one way, but we also need healers. We need more healers. You know, last year during all of the uprising and the protesting, right? And there was a lot of it, many, many, many well-deserved. But after that happened, a lot of those people needed places to unpack, right? They needed places to be able to just go and talk through and process what they're feeling and what they're going through. And so I'd say there's a shortage of good, caring clinicians in my industry, right? There's a lot of people who get into it because maybe, you know, it sounds great. This is not a knock on the folks, but just, just good, caring folks, right? To be there to help folks, right? So more clinicians, more good, caring people, that's one way. And then I think just in general, all of us in terms of, it's a word I think sometimes gets overused, accountability, right? But it's important. There's that sense of self-accountability of just me being mindful of my own biases. Like even as a therapist, I still have to be mindful of it. But there's also accountability for how we show up in the community, right? Understanding that Yes, we're individuals, but we're all interconnected and everything we do and say has impact on others. So if we're impactful, if we're empathetic towards each other, right, if we are showing up for ourselves and showing up for others, then we can make and change the world into the place that we we want to see. And I know it sounds like ambitious and, and, and flowery, but I'm telling you, it works. It really, really works. It works so much that I built a company around it. So along with my practice, I also started a consulting firm called Woo Corporation. And Woo stands for Why Having Empathy Works. And I work with schools and companies, helping them shift from some of their toxic environments. And a big part of what we focus on is teaching leaders in those companies to be more empathetic, right? Because empathetic leaders then can be able to create empathetic institutions. And then 
we can create the place where everybody wants to work and be. Tremendous work. Tremendous work. What advice would you have to some of those clinicians? We've got almost a new set of times and new healing required, right? What kind of advice could you pass on to new up-and-coming healers or clinicians, as you just mentioned? What could you pass on to them? If I think about that, the first thing that comes to mind is, what are the things that I wanted to know when I was leaving school that I'm now having to teach myself? And I think is get a mentor, you know, someone who can help you navigate this thing. Everyone wants to just sort of go out there and just do their thing, but get a mentor or a set of mentors to help you and make sure that while you're doing this work, you're looking at yourself and doing your own healing. And if needs be, get yourself a therapist too, right? Because as we're taking on all of this trauma from other folks, in order for us to show up for our clients, we have to make sure that we're also showing up for ourselves, that we're doing the work to unpack our own stuff and what we call vicarious trauma, the trauma that you get from hearing stories of trauma over and over again, right? So I'd say get a mentor to help you navigate Mm -hmm. and definitely take care of yourself. Take care of yourself because this is not easy, right? No, no, not, not easy at all. All right. One question that I love asking everyone we have on the podcast is to give us the top three apps that you use on your phone, but you can't name email or calendar or text messaging. And I'm assuming one of the apps might be a mental health app, but let's see. Let's see. So, okay. All right. Okay. So I think the top one is Calm, right? All right. All right. Right before I went on, I listened to that pretty much all day. You know what was interesting about that? I do some deep breathing exercises before I have to do public speaking too. It's just yeah. a way of yeah. calming you down. Yeah, exactly. I'd say Kindle probably more so right now, like because I have a ton of books to read, yeah. but I have some fun books on there too that I'm reading. And for fun, Bejeweled. Oh, nice. <laughs> Explain that one. I don't Bejeweled, think I've heard of that one. Bejeweled though. is like this game, like my sister and I have played it for years. It's like, it literally is a mindless game, right? You just... Um, you, you have a full blast sound on too. Yes, yes. <laughs> oh, Eric, you and play this? Like, <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, it's literally, it's a kid's game. I mean, I wouldn't say it's a kid's game, but it's, it's, it's just one of those mindless games. You just, I guess it's like, what's it like? It's almost like kind of like, yeah, yeah. It's like, you know things exploding. Yes. Yeah. That's all. That's all. It is. Angry Birds meets Tetris, but with jewels. Oh, wow. Wow. Learn something new about my co-host buddy over there. Yeah. 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 And I guess, (laughs) I guess the other one, um, maybe Twitter. I don't have a lot of time because I'm working hard, you know, in school all the time, but Twitter gets me a quick like update, like, what's kind of happening right now. Gotcha. Okay. Thank you for that. And so if people want to continue the conversation with you, stay in touch with you, how can our listeners get in touch with you? Yeah, definitely. At Desiree Dixon is my Instagram. I'm trying to get better about like keeping it updated. (laughs) So I'm I'm trying to get better, especially as we are out there now doing more speaking engagements around identity-based trauma. Mm -hmm. Uh, But definitely just send me a shout out there. Hit me up. I love talking to people about this stuff. I can talk about this 24 hours a day if the family would let me. They just don't want to hear about it 24 <laughs> hours. But yeah, just hit me up on Instagram and I'll be happy to to chat. Excellent. Desiree Dixon. Desi from the blog. Yes. I like that one. <laughs> 
thanks for hanging with us. And, and what a what a great event and what a great yes. job at AdColor. Killed it up there. And, Listen, and- thank you so much. I'll say it again. I am so grateful to Tiffany and the AdColor family. This is my first time, so I'm I'm grateful for them having me, all of you guys for having me and just welcoming me. It's been an amazing experience. And yeah, so hopefully, you know, I was able to show up and help these folks figure out how to pull up. Right? Excellent. Well, thanks so much for hanging with us. And thanks everyone for listening to another episode. You can find more episodes where you find all of your audio and video. Just search Minority Report Podcast and look for the logo. Thanks. Thanks.